0: Warning, this podcast contains scenes of explicit nonsense and lore.
1: Previously on the Resident Evil Podcast.
2: Despite ignoring the large word dead written right next to his name, that fucking file is haunting my dreams.
3: When the team calls Chris out on it, he kind of doesn't really have an excuse as if the writers
2: themselves didn't really, couldn't come up with a good reason for it.
4: He's a full-blown expert, He's, he's Magneto, isn't he?
2: He spends his time hiding in the reservoir, watching romance films and eating <laughs> cheese.
5: But I, I felt that, like, like you say, it's absolutely terrifying. It's more like, you know, Resident Evil out Silent Hill, Silent Hill.
2: We just
6: read
5: into
2: these things far too much. Which is I think... ironic,
4: because I know we've been sitting here for the last few hours,
3: probably reading <laughs> far too much into all this stuff. But, you know, that's what we're here yeah. for.
1: Welcome to episode 70 and the start of season 7 of the Resident Evil podcast. New season, same nonsense and lore. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune, needing a bigger boat since 1985. Let's see who's joining us today. He lives in a cave monitoring all Resident Evil lore. It's the Batman. Good evening. He may combine with his best man to become a monster. It's Star's Tyrant.
4: Hello there, everybody.
1: He's undead and from down under. It's Romby. Hello. And uh, dig your own grave and save. It's George Trevor. Hello. Hi. Gabbing up on today's podcast, although we said the last episode concluded our discussions on Resident Evil Village, well, it's not every day you get to speak with a key player to the actual game. We are extremely pleased to announce that joining us later on in the podcast is an interview with Resident Evil screenwriter Anthony Johnston. We are very excited that he's been able to spend uh, a good hour with us talking about all his insights into Resident Evil Village, the writing process, and we ask him some of the key community questions that everyone has been lining up to uh, try and find some answers out to. So before he joins us, we will start with the news. First bit of news, uh, live action news. Oh yes, this has caused a bit of a debate. The live action Resident Evil TV series has announced its cast... Oh, yes. Lance Reddick has been cast as Albert Wesker. Other roles have yet to be uh, officially confirmed, but we've got Ella Belinska, Tamara Smart, Sienna Agudong, Adele Rudolph and Paulo Nunes have all been cast in the... Uh... I don't know. It's not a reboot. We're not quite sure what it's going to be entirely. Uh, it's, it's its own thing, isn't it? It looks to be, yeah. It's not clear if it's part of the Anderson verse. It's, it's clearly not the reboot movie,
3: and it's clearly no. not part of the Anderson verse because there's an Albert Wesker in
1: that. There is a new Albert Wesker. That's caused a bit of debate, which I don't want to dwell on, but um, needless to say, Lance Reddick is an awesome actor and I'm very much looking forward to seeing his take on Albert Wesker.
5: Yeah, great choice.
1: next bit of news Peter Fabiano has now left Capcom 13 years in the job working his way up he has now left for past as new going off to Bungie uh, leaving quite a reputation and quite a resume behind him what will his lasting legacy on Capcom be in terms of sales figures for Resident Evil the series has never been in a stronger position under his um, you know with him as producer and whatnot. the series has really gone from strength to strength
5: I think maybe the elephant in the room is fair play he's come out and he, you know he's put his head above the parapet and he came out and gave his opinion in terms of you know where the remakes in particular stood in terms of canon and that's obviously where the debate lies
3: for us I guess the, his lasting legacy will be how we perceive the canon but for everyone else I guess it's, it has been said the success of the franchise at least in the west is definitely partly challenging to him so
1: what's an interesting point is something that um sometimes gets forgotten is that fabiano's views on the canon is interesting but it shows that as the franchise goes on new people come on board and they may have a completely different view we may get different views and this is something that perhaps is forgotten at times you know it evolves constantly the canon changes constantly what capcom consider to be important for the storyline isn't what other people will think what's important for the storyline certainly old directors old producers you know it's not that this is fixated in any given time this is what must be true, mm. uh, in inverted yeah. commas, because it, it entirely depends, you know, what happens, and Capcom are the IP holder, they can do what they like. I was going to say, especially for a franchise that's 25 years old, you know.
4: Mm. And his comments just continue to echo in what is coming to be, you know, the, probably the most referred to quote of Alex's from the interview we did with him last year, which was, you know, ultimately in Japan, where Peter was based for many, many years, and he's obviously a fluent Japanese speaker, um, so he knows this first hand for the people he must, um, you know, engage with is that this canonicity we we nitpick so brutally in the west is ultimately a much more of a a sort of placid thing for them you know in the east you know which is canon og2 remake 2 it doesn't matter as long as you've got the core beats you know it's, it's irrelevant and and i think that's what peter fabiano was saying when he addressed those questions certainly it's not might not be the most satisfying answer for a lot of people but as alex alluded to you know, the Japanese opinion of it is it kind of doesn't really matter. You just kind of, you know, adapt and move on.
1: Other news, the Resident Evil 3, the board game, Kickstarter's been hit. And in fact, uh, it's been sent out to uh, the original Kickstarter supporters. Signiac, one of our friends from First Aid Spray, he's a supporter and he's been able to get a copy uh, of the uh, Resident Evil 3 board game. I'm not particularly a board gamer, but you can see the excitement <laughs> that uh, it generates, you know, the Resident <laughs> Evil Two board game's been so successful with all the. Well, updates. that's what, I, yeah. As I was going to say, how successful that
3: board game was is not surprising. People were excited because essentially having a sequel to it is essentially making like another package. Yeah. Obviously, they had expansions for the second, but now it's like you know new players and new stuff. So yeah, for so people who are keen on that, very good news.
5: I um, don't play it. But the two things I love about it is that it looks so well made, the artwork, the cards, all of it, all the production levels. But also, if you look at the expansions and just delve into it even slightly, just read about it uh, without actually even playing it. It almost seems like it's been been written by fans and people that seem to almost have more of a a handle on, on the series narrative than maybe those in charge of the games.
1: The details on the monsters, you know, the board pieces, Nemesis final form just looks, you know, stunning. Sadly, I have zero painting skills, so it would be an utter mess if I were to um, have a go. Yeah, it's an impressive thing, and I'm, I'm really pleased that this has been able to continue onwards, and of course, you know, always good with fundraising, things like this, uh, hitting their deadline and their, and their quotas to get the game into production, so fantastic stuff. Keep an eye on that. If it's as popular as the Resident Evil 2 one, you should be able to find it relatively easily online, but also in shops. Yeah, certainly in the UK, you can get it quite easily at a lot of Forbidden Planet shops. Other news, Laced Records are releasing a box set version of the Resident Evil 2 Remake soundtrack. What's interesting about this is that Resident Evil 2 Remake uh, is a very, very, very minimal soundtrack. But, Rob, I'm going to bring you into this When you were editing my video Well, our video for the remake (laughs) 2 and 3 canon uh, Which you can watch on YouTube You actually found that the soundtrack is actually really good It's just so quiet on the actual game But when you actually listen to it in full There's a couple of good tunes on there Yeah, it's such a weird thing It's such a minimal soundtrack in the game And I think it's definitely
3: underplayed But when you actually listen to the tracks I was like, you know, there's some actually good tracks here And some good reapproached versions of other tracks on the original that are in there, and it's not a bad soundtrack. I'm kind of surprised there's enough for, a. I think it's a four-disc vinyl set. So it's a box set, So whereas most of the other releases have only been two. So that's kind of impressive as well, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it's in a box setup this time because of the number of vinyl records. So I think it's pre-order release early next year. And I'm sure they'll follow it up with a Remake 3 one, probably, no doubt. That will probably have Remake 3 and Resistance tracks on it.
1: Yes, and we can probably expect a Village one in due course as well. Mm, Definitely down the track. That is all the gaming news, but we do have some site news, so we'd like to thank our new patrons for joining us. That's Fen Rivers, Malakota, Jimmy Joe Jangles... And Phil Rogers, thank you so much for joining us. Patreon, if you're interested, just head over to our website. There's a little button at the bottom of the web page and you can um, have a look and join us if you like. The major bit of site news, though, is our Biohazard 7 law document has now been released it's on our website just under the features section this is a uh, collection a collation of all the Resident Evil 7 supplemental material exclusively released in Japan this is all in one document and there's some documents and articles in there that have never been translated completely before so feel free to check that out Batman, you want to give us a bit more information about uh, your process of what you've had to obtain and put it all together?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it just follows up from the one we did before. I wanted to put all the available supplemental material for Seven in one place, so it's available for everyone in one document. Um, a lot of it comes from Tokyo Maru, uh, who work officially with Capcom, obviously, to produce story lore for the guns that are featured in the game. So there is a lot of, you know, quote unquote, gun porn in there about how these weapons work, but interspersed amongst all that is lots of unreleased story lore in in relation to blue umbrella and the bsa and how they work together and as well as the tokyo maru stuff there's the Kaitashinso guidebook as well which has been fully translated with all the story stuff some of the things we learned in village were originally released in this book as well which confirms its validity in terms of canon uh, in my opinion so uh, if you want to know a bit more about the background story of seven and by extension eight then i recommend you give it a read
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Reminder: that's on our website. It's the and then just click on the features tab and you should see it right in the middle on the first line. Or if you're on the mobile, just sort of scroll down a bit and you should see it. And It should download as a lovely PDF. That does finish all our site news and I'm delighted to be able to say we are now joined by our special guest for this podcast, Mr. Anthony
0: Johnson. Mother Miranda is the cold, calculating ruler of this village. Four lords serve under her. The first you've already met, the Lady Demetresque. The second lives deep in a valley of mist, the dollmaker, Donna Beneviento. None of her playmates have ever come back from that dank old estate.
1: We are delighted to welcome New York Times bestselling writer Anthony Johnson to the Resident Evil podcast. Screenwriter for Resident Evil Village, many Dead Space projects, Shadow of Mordor and Zombie U as well. Quite the bio. So thank you for taking your time out of your schedule to come and speak with us regarding Resident Evil Village. I'd like to say with confidence how much we enjoyed Ethan's storyline in Village. He went through hell and back. As someone who really resonated with him uh, as the blank canvas in Resident Evil 7, his struggles were very emotive and raw, and his sacrifice at the end. So just as a kind of introduction for our listeners, what was your general introduction to Resident Evil, and how familiar were you with the series lore?
6: My introduction was... Uh, I mean, I've been aware of the franchise since its inception. Um, You know, I remember the first Resident Evil. I didn't play it at the time, but I remember it. Um, I think 4 was maybe the first one that I played. Uh, I I, I confess I'm more of a Silent Hill guy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I know, I know.
1: That concludes (laughs) our (laughs) (laughs) podcast.
6: (laughs) <laughs> battle lines are drawn already no I mean, back in the early 2000s i got big into silent hill and played all of those and but yeah obviously also familiar with resident evil but not to the extent of you know being a sort of lore expert or anything which meant i had to do an awful lot of ginning up when i was hired <laughs> to work on village as you can imagine uh, but that's fine you, you get used to that honestly you can't play everything you know you can't read everything you can't watch everything you can't play everything. And so it's not that unusual, especially in AAA series franchises, to get hired and go, oh, hell, I'd better do lots of reading up here. You know, because obviously, I mean, I've seen the movies, but I know even I knew the movies were nothing like the lore of the games. And like I say, I'd played a couple of the games, but never got heavily into the lore. So, yeah, I just had to do my research, as you do. But like I say, that's not that uncommon with these long running franchises uh, because, you know, you, you can't play everything.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, is it 25 years worth of Resident Evil lore? Yeah. Right.
6: And well, and not don't forget all the spin-offs and transmedia and stuff as well. It's and I'm sure you guys, because that's what you're into, I'm sure you do know it all. But I don't. <laughs> you know, um probably the only thing that I could, you know, sort of talk authoritatively about on that sort of level would be the original Star Wars. Stuff because I was, you know, I'm old enough that I was exactly the right age when the first movie came out and then when it hit big, you know, became this phenomenon. And then I got into the lore there and the transmedia and even the, the original role playing game and some of the early video games. You know, that's a world where I can go deep into the lore. But there aren't many. You can't focus on that many. So, as I say, it's not uncommon for... A writer to be hired and then have to do lots of research the good thing getting away from the negative if you like and turning back to the positive the good thing of course is that there is so much law in resident evil and uh not only is it fun but also one of the as you will know obviously one of the tenets from resident evil 7 that came through to this one was not that it's a break from the existing RE lore and continuity, because clearly it's not. Everything is tied together. But it's not slavish. You know, there there was no um, edict that we had to cram all the existing lore into the game and that it had to, you know, I don't know, simulate or emulate one of the previous games. Quite the opposite. They wanted Village to be unlike any other Resident Evil game. And it has similarities to some of the others. Of course it does. But as a whole, it is very unlike any other instalment in the franchise. And so that was a help in a way, because even somebody like me who wasn't all that familiar with the lore, I didn't feel as if I was being kind of thrown to the wolves, if you'll pardon the pun.
5: I was interested to hear hear your roots with Silent Hill, because um, a huge highlight of Village for for many and myself was House Beneviento. I've always wanted to see maybe more Silent Hill-esque themes and that psychological horror creep into Resident Evil. And so and it was interesting to hear that and I wondered if that kind of shaped your your writing when you uh, when you got to the House Beneviento scenario
6: so the funny thing about House and I'm I'm assuming that everybody listening to this has played the game already, so I'm not going to try and sort of be anti-spoiler or anything. That, uh, you know, you there's your fair warning. <laughs> here, here be spoilers. The funny thing about House Men and Viento is, you're right, it is absolutely, I, I, you know, I said all along, this is clearly the, the most Silent Hill that any Resident Evil game has ever got. But that was almost all, the, the concept and the execution of it was almost all down to the vision of... I believe, to the best of my knowledge anyway, Satosan, the game director, who obviously was also, of course, you know, uh, deeply involved in in the narrative and story. And that was his vision. And I wasn't involved in the design of that in terms of, you know, sort of game design and challenges and all that kind of stuff. I did write quite a bit of script for that section. Uh, you know, speeches from both Donna and Angie and a whole ending scene that would have had, you know, one of those, well, much like Ethan gets, you know, one of those death scenes where you then manage to get a 10-minute monologue out. Um, I wrote all of that, and then we just didn't need it. Uh and this is another part of, you know, being any writer, not just games writer. This happens in all media. Sometimes you write it because you need to get it out. And you need to establish what you're trying to do. But then when it comes to the execution, you like you realise, oh, actually, we don't need this. Um, you see it a lot with actors in, you know, film and TV and stuff where they'll have a whole monologue written out and they just don't need to read it. They can do it all with their face. You know, they can give you, throw an expression at the camera and that says as much as five lines of dialogue ever could. And that was what we found with Beneviento, that further along we went, the the more we realise we just don't need the script. Um, I mean, there are some bits of script in there. Obviously, there's things like the radio transmissions and stuff. But there is... a a fraction of what i originally wrote because it just and and i hope you'll agree that you know it works perfectly fine without it you really don't need pages and pages of script and cutscene and what have you in that section and it, it actually works better without it because it's more creepy and it's more intense and you feel more alone when there is nothing except just silence in this creepy big old house and of course the giant slug baby monster
1: (laughs) (laughs) which haunts our dreams (laughs) but it's certainly what yeah i mean a lot of people that was a real highlight and i'm interested to see what you're saying there about you know the, the minimal approach with some of the dialogue and discussing how did that work in um, in practice, when you were cutting down parts or you know, changing, you know, amending the script, how did that work with Capcom and you know, and the other developers about how this was going to progress in the game? Uh, I mean, it, what's the it, writers' it's an, room like? basically? I think. Is the, well,
6: yeah, it's an iterative process. There wasn't really a writers' room on village except when i was first hired because obviously they're in japan i live here in england so when i was first hired i went over to osaka in february 2019 i think it was having already you know i started work on it in i think october or november of the previous year and then i went to visit the studio in february uh and we spent a week sitting in a meeting room uh the meeting room on the main floor of the you know um development of village oh and there was uh, there was me sato san the director miyazaki-san who was animation lead i think or cinematic animation director or something like that steve nebley who's the cinematics director james michael who was my sort of liaison and translator throughout the whole process and massive props to him because <laughs> that cannot have been easy um dezaki-san who was the sort of uh kind of japanese side japanese equivalent of me if you like japanese side of you know narrative lead uh, and we all just sat in the room and figured it out. You know, we started not quite from first principles because some of the design had already been done at that point. So there were certain things that had either, you know, work had already started. So we had to have things like the villager's house, um, you know, where Ethan goes with uh, Elena and her father. Like at some point, somewhere in the game, that had to happen because that desi- that had already been designed and work had already begun on it. But where it happened in the game, And exactly what happened in there had not yet been decided. And there was so there were lots of elements like that. We also hadn't at that point figured out exactly who Mother Miranda was or what her backstory was, how she tied into the larger law. All of this had to be worked out. Uh, And that's what we did for a week. We spent the entire week in that meeting room just figuring that stuff out. And even then, we didn't get it all right first time around. You know, there was stuff that we came up with in that room that we all went away going brilliant, we've got it, we've solved it, yes, fantastic, that's it, don't change a word, and then we change every word uh, (laughs) over the course of the next year or so, because that's, again, that's development, it's iterative, Uh, and that's not just games, although it does happen a lot more in games than in most other media. So that was the only real writer's room that we had. From that point on, it was then video calls, almost daily, between myself and Capcom, after I returned home to England, uh, where we'd go through, you know, script I'd written or revisions that needed to be done or changes that they decided they wanted to make to various scenes or to the plot and you know also discussing changes to things that we decided in the room that they're like, ah, we're not sure this is working anymore. Let's try and figure something else out. And so we would go through that as well. Again, you know, very iterative. So this is a very long way of answering your question. (laughs) But the reason I'm going sort of around the houses is the idea of the 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 fact that script gets dropped or gets changed, or gets minimised, or whatever, is just part of that process. It's not like a movie where, say, I write an entire screenplay, and then a producer comes along and says, we're going to drop that scene. And I go, oh no, please don't. That's not how it works. That's not how it happens, you know? There are, yes, I'm the scriptwriter, and I'm credited as the scriptwriter. Which, by the way, props to Capcom, because you would be amazed how many games writers do not get credited properly. Um Ooh. But, yeah, it's a whole bugbear of mine, believe me. <laughs> I rant about it at the Writers Guild every year. But there are, were at least, I mean, I just named them, there were at least four or five other people involved in that process, just at a high level. And then below them, there are, you know, they're all managing other people as well. Games writing is, in AAA, at any rate, a very collaborative process. One person does not write an entire game, you know, even Hideo Kojima is not the only person writing that game in terms of who literally writes the dialogue. And then who's in charge of directing the voice actors? Is it him or does he have a subordinate? Even that can affect how the lines are said and sometimes what the lines are. Because once you get in the recording booth with actors, some actors will not be able Well, sometimes you'll write a line that looks great on paper and then when an actor reads it out, you go, oh, that's terrible. We need to change that. But you don't realise until an actor has read it out. Or sometimes actors just can't get their mouth around certain phrases. And so you'll have to change those on the fly. All of these things are part of game story, game script writing and game narrative. And none of them is any more or less important than the other. They are all vital parts of the process so that everybody can you know, genuinely say, I was part of writing that story and making that narrative. Everybody has, you know, sort of a sense of ownership because it is, like I say, no one person does it all. So when things get dropped, when somebody says, oh, actually, we don't need that line or we don't need that scene, it's not like it's somebody from on high delivering a stone tablet, you know, <laughs> it's, it's part of this whole process in which everybody is involved all the time.
3: I guess a, a good follow-up question is in regards to how the focus was for you, like being brought on board. How they perceive bringing in, an, you know, a writer outside of the company, regardless of whether or not it's in English, but also how that works with the your scripting and the Japanese scripting, and how much is kind of a back and forth between you know versions and and what you have to do. Like, how does that work? That seems like a, quite a complicated potential especially when you've got a translator in the mix in a a, a boardroom. How how does that process work? How, how, How do they even consider bringing you on board in the first place?
6: Well, it is complex, no question. It is something that takes time you know, it it can be a slow and sometimes laborious process, especially, as you say, when there is translation that needs to be done. Most AAA studios are not wary, if you like, but, you know, when they bring in freelancers, there's always a a kind of, okay, so how's this going to work? Because every job's different, every studio is different. The good thing about Resident Evil, of course, is that they have prior experience of this on the team. You know, it's not like I'm the first outside writer that they've brought in, and not even the first Western writer that they've brought in. Why did they reach out to me? They were looking for a Western writer. My games agent had a prior relationship with Capcom, uh, and so I think, you know, my agent was one of the people that they reached out to to try and find a Western writer for it. And I... mean obviously i have the dead space stuff on my resume which helps enormously when it comes to any kind of uh you know getting offers for to write horror games but also i wrote a game called binary domain for sega Mm -hmm. back in 2012 i think it was uh which was from the ryoga gotoku studio you know the yakuza guys and that went okay You know, I won't say it was the best game in the world, but I'm I'm pretty proud of it. You know, and it was a bit weird because I was the first ever Western writer that that studio had worked with on any game, so it was a bit odd, and we're all kind of finding our feet. But it went okay, you know, and I think that helped give Capcom confidence that I understood how Japanese studios work. And that I could slot into that role without there being a massive culture clash or without me uh you know I don't know getting outraged or something by their behavior or vice versa. you know they, I think that helped make them think, oh, okay, this probably, this guy's probably a safe pair of hands. But also, yeah, uh, you know, the Dead Space work, uh, Work in a Shadow of Mordor and Zombie U, of course. And then my other work, you know, Atomic Blonde and uh, my novels and all my graphic novel work. And, you know, it all kind of adds up. So I don't know ultimately why they said, "Okay, you're the guy. But all of that played into it, I'm sure. And then, yeah, as I say, it's a very iterative process. All of the sort of the the changes and the back and forth about changes to the script and changes to the storyline uh, it's all just you kind of get used to it you know there were scenes where I would write an entire scene and then a week later <laughs> I'd, I'd be on the on the Skype on them uh, to the in, you know in the morning and they'd say oh by the way we've uh, we've completely changed that scene and here's a new preview that we filmed down in the basement with uh, the animation director and a couple of flunkies you know with some foam pipes for taking place of guns and things like that. And I'll be like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And now I have to write the script that fits this new previs. Again, it sounds outrageous, but it's entirely normal. So, yeah, it's it's all just part of the process. One of the things that I like about working in games is that it's kind of chaotic, to be honest. You know, it's even though games as an industry is quite old, games taking writers seriously and taking narratives seriously is still relatively new. And every project and every studio, as I said before, is completely different. So... It is kind of chaotic, but if you thrive on that chaos, even maybe revel in it a little bit, then uh, then it's a lot of fun.
2: Village is very much a continuation of Ethan's story, but one one of the aspects I was interested in personally was some of the, the ties to the older games, particularly Miranda's relationship with Spencer and the origins of the Umbrella logo. I was just wondering if was that was your idea, or was that Capcom Japan, or was it a mixture of both?
6: That was initiated by... Quite late in the process, actually. So the idea of having some ties to older Resident Evil lore, that was there from the beginning. But exactly what that would be wasn't at all, you know, finalized. Um, At one stage, there was talk of there being an actual uh, umbrella laboratory underground that would literally be you know proper sort of clean room high-tech laboratory just buried underground somewhere that you would uh, go in i think during the chris section obviously that wasn't the case you know that that never panned out but that gives you an idea of how early in the process we were talking about that sort of thing the final iteration of it uh was mostly capcom partly because as i say they have obviously much more familiarity with the law than me so they had they, they could tie it in better than I could. I made suggestions, but again, not being an expert in the law, uh, I wasn't really the best placed person to make those connections between Miranda and Spencer uh, that you read, you know, that you've discovered and all that sort of stuff, because I probably would have got some bits wrong. <laughs> so you, you don't want that because then people like you would get very angry uh, and deservedly so.
2: <laughs> Did you have any um, input with the exposition story files in the game? Or was it just sort of the cutscenes and scripts that you were focusing on?
6: I didn't write the final versions of those documents, but I—they were all based on stuff that we had worked out together. And I did write some early—you uh, know—I wrote character bio descriptions and uh, theories of how something might work and. Uh, even field reports at one point, I think, from BSAA and and stuff like that. So while I didn't write the final versions that you see in the game, you know, they were based off work that I had done with the team, uh, or at least in part. But yeah, most of that was done, I think, in-house at Capcom.
2: We've read previous interviews with previous writers, and sometimes Capcom have said certain characters or elements from previous games were off the table. And I was just wondering, was there any other characters or from previous games, such as Leon or Jill, that you potentially maybe wanted to include, but Capcom said, no, we're saving them for other projects or for whatever reason, no, you can't use this particular aspect, or did you have complete freedom?
6: Um, I don't know if I had complete freedom, because that question never came up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that we had the characters we had, and those were the characters that we always sort of worked with, and knew would be involved in the game. And nobody suggested bringing in any other characters. Uh, so I, I genuinely don't know, and I don't mean in a way of you know we were told. And you cannot bring in any more, but nobody, the question wasn't even raised. So I genuinely don't know how Capcom would have reacted if I'd said, oh, well, let's bring in Jill or something. Um, I suspect they probably would have said no, but I honestly can't say for sure because, like I say, the question never came up. Right from the start, it was very clear that this was Ethan's story, that it was going to be Ethan and Mia again, Chris would be involved, and everybody in the village would be an entirely new character. And that was just, that was set long before I got involved. It never changed. The Wolfhound squad were a slightly later edition. I don't think they were involved, or at least they weren't, not to the extent that they are in terms of, you know, having speaking lines and stuff right at the start. But it didn't take long for them to get involved. And obviously they're not characters on the level of, you know, somebody like, yeah, Leon or Jill anyway. Um, yeah, nobody else, as I say, it, it was always going to be Ethan's story with Chris involved. And then all these new villains and monsters and what have you in the village so the question just never came up
1: I think that's to its credit because Ethan I say that kind of blank slate from seven I have a question about Mia because she is a bad guy really she's a she <laughs> she, she works for the connections as a bioterrorist but you need to convey a bit of sympathy in village so was there any challenges presented in in doing that bear you know considering what she put Ethan through in Resident Evil
6: 7. I mean, you know, Jason Statham tried to murder Dom Toretto, uh, you know, in, in a previous <laughs> Fast and Furious movie, and now he's on the hero's side. And all it took was a bit of fisticuffs outside some cars to settle the score. It's, you know, look, these things happen, don't they? You know, um, bear in mind that it's also supposed to have been three years since the events of Resident Evil 7. So, honestly, that didn't that didn't come up other than we knew there would be some suspicion, and rightly so, on the part of players when it was revealed that Mia was still alive. But we didn't want that to be a focus because we wanted this to be Ethan's story. We didn't want players to get too fixated on, oh wait, is Mia a bad guy after all, sort of thing. Uh, And that's why when you do realise that Mia's alive and you find her, we established, yes, this is the real Mia. And yes, she has genuinely been captured and no, she's not a villain pretty quickly. I mean, we do that within about four or five lines. (laughs) Uh, You know, the whole business with the wedding ring and stuff like that, because we didn't want people to dwell on it. We had to address it, of course, but we didn't want people to dwell on it. It's funny that about Ethan being a blank slate, which is, of course, true in Seven. And one of the things that I really tried to do, really worked hard at doing in Eight, was to give him just a little bit more personality and make him a little bit less of a blank slate and we could do that because we knew this was the end of his story the problem with franchise characters especially franchise player characters is that you want the player to be able to kind of project themselves into them and so you actually that's why you have these blank slate characters, that's why Isaac in the first Dead Space game didn't speak. There was a fear that if he spoke, you know, in the same as true of Gordon Freeman and stuff as well, obviously. You know, if, if these characters speak, then you're giving them, you're defining their personality. And if that's not the same as the player, it can sometimes throw the player out. I'm not 100% on board with that theory, but it is a valid theory and it's very, very common in game development. So that's why he was a blank slate in 7. You know, that that's not a knock on... The writers of Seven at all, because that was the design of the game and the character. But with this one, we knew it was his end. We knew he was going to die properly, you know, for real die <laughs> at the end of this game. We knew it was the conclusion of his story. And so I was allowed, given a license, however you want to put it, to basically give him a bit more personality. And I really tried hard to have him react in the way that any regular person who has seen this stuff before, but really does not want to go through it again, would react in those situations. And that's why he's a bit more sweary, he's a bit more exasperated, Uh, He's a bit shorter, a bit more terse with people. He really, really... Can I swear on this show? Yeah, yeah. Right. He really just wants to be out of this bullshit. He is done with this bullshit. You know, he... Like, what the hell is going on here? I cannot believe I'm in this situation again. For God's sake, I just want a quiet life. I really tried to sort of inject that into what, as you as you rightly say, had previously been a bit of a blank slate. I was heartened to see so many people react to ethan in village in ways that suggested that i succeeded in that at least you know to the extent that it was possible that yeah he is more of a character this time around and he has a bit more bite to him because he is just tired of this bullshit
3: <laughs> i think that makes sense in and that, in that obviously at this point when you've got a character that wants to you know be there to save their child it would be a bit weird to continue to have a blank slate so it all fits perfectly and it, and it is definitely something that comes across that he has comments, he has reactions to things, and it feels earnest.
6: I was just going to say, I'm really glad of that. And yes, you're absolutely right that obviously, I mean, even obviously searching for Mia is still emotionally fraught in Seven. But when it's your daughter, any parent will tell you, you know, you cannot escape that familial bond. Um, And it just becomes the most important thing. So yeah, that was that was really important.
3: It has reminded me, I've got one follow-up question on this topic, which is one of the things that I noticed in the game, and I don't know if you have an answer or if it ever came up, but there's a discussion with Chris and, the, and his team about who tipped off Miranda about Rose and Mia. Do you have an answer for that? Because don't. it doesn't get addressed in the game. Do you know what the plan
1: for that was?
6: I don't have an answer I can tell you.
1: <laughs>
6: and oh. well, well, hang on, but let me clarify. So, the reason for that is that we, yes, that's something that came up in discussion, obviously. There is so much I, I can't tell you. There is so much I can't tell you uh, that would just wow. blow your mind if you knew some of the ideas and crazy sort of out there things that we came up with in the early days. That, is to you know, we...
5: clone one of them? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh,
6: <God. laughs> things that we very sensibly you know, decided, actually, no, let's not do that. Um, but there were many of them. Some of those include theories as to, yes, you know, how Miranda became aware of Rose and all that sort of thing. The reason I don't want to go into detail is it is entirely possible that, mm-hmm. and I have to be very careful what I say here, it is entirely possible that some of those things may come up as yeah. lore in future games. And I don't want to either give away something that is a secret, you know, for a future game or say something here that will then be contradicted by a different idea in a future game and now i i should also very very clearly state i have no idea what the next game is i am not currently involved in it i have not been approached i would love to be but i have not um no but just because these things take time you know exactly I, if, very long time. If, yeah if they call me up and want me to come back for nine i will happily do so but right now i'm sure they're in You know, pre production that has really no bearing on anything that I could contribute.
3: They've just announced that they're wanting to do some DLC for Village, but it seems like it was a very short placed decision because they didn't have anything to announce or say just recently. It just seems like they've been blown away by the success of it in the West and and kind of want to. So there's always a chance that some of the things that you did discuss or have been thought out may turn up in in that. Exactly.
6: Exactly. Yeah. So, like I say, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say anything that might put people's noses out of joint or spoil things for players. That, that wouldn't be fair on anyone. Um, and like I say, I just want to be clear that, yeah, I don't even know for sure if they're working on a Resident Evil 9. I would be astounded if they're not. <laughs> it would strike me as the height of folly. But I'm just saying, you know, I genuinely, I have no insider knowledge on that front. But what I can say is, obviously, you've played Village, so you know where it's left at the end that's something that could potentially become maybe part of the franchise in future will it i don't know this is not me saying that it will i genuinely don't know but you know it doesn't take a genius to look at that and go oh oh i see opportunities here
4: Mm. you may have retroactively answered this question then because the first um, teaser trailer for the game showed pretty much all exclusive sequences with just the villagers living their life before the incident unfolded there's a really striking shot of alana with a lantern um, which looks like a sequence set in the dark none of that trailer has made it into the finished version of the game and i'm I'm probably thinking you're not able to talk about it but could you elaborate on any of the deleted sequences that it almost looks like we're cruelly not going to get now because it just looks so fascinating (laughs)
6: so i again i don't want to speak to what may turn up in things like dlc or future products so i can't answer that directly however what i will say and i know this because i have i have seen it in many many other games so many times is that what was in that trailer especially the first trailer you know the early trailers that you get for a game is not necessarily based on anything that has been made per se Sometimes you are looking at things that have been animated purely, and there may be an engine, but nevertheless have been animated purely for the trailer to look cool. I don't know if that was the case with that particular trailer. Again, I I can't say for sure, but I know that that is a thing that happens unquestionably. And anybody who works in games knows that this is true. It happens in movies, for heaven's sake, you know, with stuff that winds up on the cotton room floor. It happens a lot in games because trailers have to be released so far ahead of when the game is actually ready to look polished and finished and fancy. And so, a lot of the time, sequences are animated or, you know, coded in and what have you, uh, and filmed Mashinima style just to make the trailer. So, like I say, I don't know if that's the case for sure with those scenes that you're talking about in that first RE trailer, but it is entirely possible.
3: I'm curious to know, we talked about kind of where there was ideas already along the path. When it came to the enemy types and the the lords, how much input did you have on that whole thing? How the enemies worked, you know, what types of enemies you're going to face and the lords and the monsters essentially they became. Was there an idea that was presented to you or did you have pretty much freedom to kind of draw on whatever you, you saw?
6: So most of the design was outside my remit uh certainly things like you know making up lichens and various zombies and the you know the king lichen and all that sort of thing it was nothing to do with me just because it's you know just not my area the four mm. lords and miranda were they existed they had been visually designed although they weren't final um morrow in particular changed quite a lot actually his look changed quite significantly from uh, his original design to the what you see finally in the game. Heisenberg was probably the one that changed the least Now that I think about it actually He looked pretty much Right from the start uh, He looked like he does in game So visually They were all there And the idea Of them being the Lords And Miranda's Sort of quasi-children You know It was all there But again This was all stuff That we worked out Or started to work out In that writer's room Right at the start Of the process So And I'm not trying to Dodge the question here I genuinely couldn't (laughs) Actually remember How much of it was me Or Satosan Or Dazaki-san Or Miyazaki-san I really can't remember because when you're in a room like that throwing ideas around it all just kind of becomes a blur you know and and you get stuff out of it at the end and you you genuinely can't remember who came up with what idea.
3: You're all part of it, essentially. You're all part of it and none of you are part of it. you just, it's, it's exactly. the ideas. Yeah. Written. yeah.
6: Like, like I said, it's an incredibly collaborative process. And you get the same thing in writers' rooms in TV. Um, mm. You know, I, I have friends who uh, are, you know, veterans of TV rooms and they, it's the same thing there. They're like, I cannot remember whether this was my idea or somebody else's. Uh, You know, once you sort of get past the idea itself, once the idea itself becomes embedded, who originated it is often lost in the sort of collective unconscious. So, like I said, the visual design I credit almost entirely to Capcom, Um, and I know Sato-san and Miyazaki-san both had, you know, a lot of input into that, obviously. But not just them. Again, they have design leads and concept leads and animators and stuff who all contribute to this stuff. Again, very collaborative. The one thing I can say that I did and I was proud of was bring out the personalities of the four lords. In particular, uh, Lady Dimitrescu, who we didn't really have a handle on her at the start. We knew that she and Heisenberg were going to squabble. That was an idea that we liked, that I think Satosan may have come up with that to start with, and we liked that, and that was kind of, yeah, okay, we'll have that, that's good. But the self-righteousness of her personality and the sheer sort of, you know, look down your nose contempt that she has for her siblings. I'm going to, you know, sort of stick my hat in the ring, put my stake in the floor, whatever metaphor you want to use and say that was, that was me. And I'm very proud of the fact that I, I did that because, I mean, I loved the fact that we had an older woman who, you know, was not some, uh, looked like she steps off the cover of Sports Illustrated or something as a main character in the game. That in itself is so ridiculously unusual. It shouldn't be, but it is um, in games that I was just very pleased that we had that at all and then having the opportunity to make her acerbic and like i said like pompous and self-righteous and she's right like she's not wrong that's the thing you know she's not a fool to be pompous and self-righteous she is the smartest of those four siblings she is the one who gets things right uh and she's just surrounded by idiots and that was so much fun (laughs) to write (laughs) the phone call that she has with uh mother miranda was actually a really early i wrote that really early on in the process i don't think i think i had come home from japan but it was really really early on and it barely changed throughout the whole thing because it was such a great scene and i had such a great concept to work with that yeah it just didn't change much right from the start and it's still one of my favorite scenes because it just it captures her personality so perfectly that whole like you know god yes my idiot brother you know (laughs) and then just that, yes, Mother Miranda. I know the ceremony is important. God, yeah. she's like a she's like a teenager trapped in a fifty-year-old woman's body. It's wonderful. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I guess it, the sensible follow-up to that is, I mean, it seems like the staff at Capcom Japan were seemingly, and maybe yourself, surprised at how much the internet took to the character as well. Oh, were you, completely, you, yeah. <laughs> I feel like if they'd seen it coming they would have obviously tried to keep the character around longer in the game than, than she does but what was your reaction to, to all this crazy like all of a sudden people going on about you know this giant lady stepping on them and <laughs> and uh, and they obviously part of it is that attitude it's not just the it's, it's it's the way it's performed but it's the way it's written it's the way it comes across it, you know you, you should take some level of pride in that almost
6: I do absolutely but it, yes it took me by surprise of course it did I mean for having sake have you seen the photo of the advert on the side of the bus in hong kong yes <laughs> no. i, I yeah. mean come on they've, you got know?
3: Stand, they've got standees in japan yeah. you know full size standees <laughs> as well
6: yeah nine foot six standees it's just i mean it's great again the fact that like this game and this franchise now has a new uh sort of iconic character instantly recognizable who is an older woman is just i mean that shouldn't be something to shout about but it is this is the industry in which we work you know and i love that so yeah i was of course very proud but i was also surprised and kind of amused and i actually dreaded the release a little bit because there was so much hype around lady dimitrescu at the start. And i'm sure that I, i don't know this i haven't spoken to anyone but i am in myself sure that this is the reason why the other lords suddenly became much more visible in the promotion with things like the puppet show and what have you because i think somebody at capcom went oh people think she's the main villain they're going to be so angry when they actually play the game and i'm sure that's why the other lords suddenly started getting a bit more you know love and attention but yeah it was fantastic who doesn't want to help create an iconic character like that you know and contribute like i say i can't take any credit for her appearance for you know for the fact that she's the giant vampire lady or the fact that she is an older woman or her dress or anything like that i can't take credit for that you know all the performance which of course both the physical performance and the voice performance were amazing all of it contributes and so you know my, my small contribution being a part of something that broke the internet <laughs> is wonderful yeah people have told me like my you know they've said things like my grandfather who knows nothing about video games knows the giant vampire lady she just <laughs> it's they don't know what it is they don't know Resident Evil they don't know the game or anything but they're like oh the giant vampire lady yeah I've seen that
5: can I just ask Anthony do you think there's anything to be said because we've had very iconic antagonists in the past and that some fans have bemoaned because of the premature death of and have wanted to see them carried on into other games and of course Lady. and Matresque. I mean, she's made her mark in just one game. But do you think there's anything to be said in the fact that once these iconic antagonists are created, that maybe it would be good to see them, their narrative, their journey continued in its sequels?
6: I mean, there are arguments for and against that, aren't there? You know, on the one hand, everybody wants more of something good. On the other hand, you can have too much of a good thing. And there is a danger if you bring her back in, and regardless of how you explain it, you know, people will forgive ridiculous uh you know oh she wasn't really dead bobby steps out of the shower kind of explanations you know people will forgive that whatever but all of that aside there is a risk if you bring her back in a sequel if it's not as good if it doesn't excite people as much as this game did you taint the memory in retrospect Yeah. Um, that's always a risk that you take when you bring back characters that had that impact but who are supposed to be dead on the other hand you know this is an industry this is a business and it exists not only to entertain but to make money while entertaining and so I would be amazed if there aren't discussions going on at Capcom right now as to whether or not they should bring back the giant vampire lady
5: when we discussed Ethan I was fascinated by that kind of sixth sense theme I was very interested by the origin of that idea that um, you know the twist at the end that in fact he he hadn't been reanimated by the mold that he'd already died and I just wondered where the origin of that idea had had come from
6: I actually don't know that wasn't mine uh I think again that may have been Sato-san but again I I don't know for sure that actually came about so we always knew Ethan was going to die no question of that we always knew he was going to die and he was going to die taking out Mother Miranda and saving Rose of course he was you know it's the Hollywood ending that was never in any question but how he did it and the reasons for his, you know uh resilience and the ties to the connections and all that sort of stuff were kind of in flux for a while there were several ideas going around and i wrote several different versions and then i won't say late in the process but certainly later on in the process capcom settled on the idea yes that he he had already died in seven effectively you know that he was always dead he was molded all the time which is of course extremely poignant and a hell of a sort of retcon revelation (laughs) to (laughs) to show to the players. Uh, And so so that's what I wrote. But that was not mine. And I, I don't say that to distance myself from it. I think it's actually a great idea. I think it was a really good way to sort of square that circle. But I can't take the credit for it. And I genuinely don't know where or with whom exactly it originated.
2: Can I just ask a question about Rose and the the ending scene, which was a first for Resident Evil in terms of what we think is a flash forward? Um, That's what we believe. But some in the community think that um, Rose is ageing quicker, similar to how Eveline did in Resident Evil 7. And I was wondering if you could settle the debate for us of whether it's a flash forward or whether she's ageing prematurely.
6: I cannot answer that question. (laughs) (laughs)
3: it was a good shot john it was a good shot i had to try i had to try i'm gonna go on this this tangent as well not because i know anthony can probably answer this but i'm just curious like obviously the game was marketed as the end of ethan's story and it seems like in the time recently, they have maybe considering whether or not that's going to change. Was that ever a discussion not to have Ethan die? Like, was that a, there was ever a consideration at some point? Can you mention that? Or is it always, he was, that was the, the intent. That's what they wanted.
6: That was always the intent. I think it's pretty safe for me to, to say that. Yeah. Certainly from the moment that I came on board, that was the intent. I, I can't speak to what discussions they may have had before then, but certainly from the time that I became involved it was always, this is the sequel to Seven and Ethan dies at the end, saving Rose. That's, like I said, that was never in doubt. It was always the, always going to be the case. I will actually, one thing I will say, talking about that end scene, is I saw some speculation recently. Somebody saying that they'd heard there was an early version of that scene that involved Chris. No, there wasn't. Uh, I don't know where you heard that. You hear some very, very strange rumours on the internet, believe me. Mm. uh, Having been in various different entertainment businesses for the last 20 years, you would be astounded at how much absolute nonsense gets put around on the internet as actual, you know, as complete fact. And it has no basis in reality whatsoever. Uh, And I'm, you know, half the time, I'm sure there's no malice behind it, but just, yeah, you know... (laughs) It makes me laugh. So let me just say, no, there was never, certainly I never wrote a version where Chris was involved in that scene. And I don't know where that rumor came from.
3: I'm going to go on another quick side tangent. Sean and I both noticed the hot fuzz reference in the game. And we're wondering if there are any other little things that you snuck into the game that we, we know <laughs> that you're involved in. Like we, we both had a conversation about it, and he posted it on, on Twitter weeks ago, and we thought it was. And then we, we, we know now from your conversation previous that you, you this was the case. Is there anything else that players should pay attention to that, that maybe you, you managed to get in there?
6: The Hot Fuzz reference wasn't mine.
3: Oh, it wasn't no, yours?
6: No. No, no, no. That wasn't me. No. Yeah. Oh. Uh, no i i actually i'm not sure who came up with that that might have been <laughs> james uh I, I yeah i genuinely don't know um but no that wasn't it's mine. different um, it's
3: different in the japanese version supposedly is what i've been oh if, really yeah. oh i didn't
6: know that yeah so what i tend to do i mean again i wasn't involved in uh sort of writing the collectibles you know the documents and all that sort of thing so i didn't name any of those objects that's how i know That's one thing I can say definitively is that it wasn't there. (laughs) Um, And also, as a result, I can say I didn't try to sneak any similar sort of, you know, puns for names of objects and stuff in. That said, I am known uh, for occasionally dropping, you know, a reference to Motorhead lyrics or uh, you know things like that, <laughs> things like that in there or a hawkwind album or something into my scripts uh, i can neither confirm nor deny whether there are any in resident evil <laughs> but that it is something okay, it is it. something that i have been known to do throughout my career <laughs>
2: What about I... that boulder-punching arsehole? Was that you? Because that was brilliant.
6: <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I wish I could take credit for that one, but no, that was... Uh, ah, do you know, actually, I, again, I think that might have been James because that technically was a bark rather than a cutscene, And that was mostly down to James and Dezaki-san, I believe. Um, so no, that wasn't me. I actually... I mean, I laughed. Of course, I laughed when I heard it <laughs> for the first time. I actually wouldn't have put that in there And I say this not to disparage whoever decided that they would have put it in there. But it's a little, for me, it was, a. I laughed, yes, but it was a little bit too cute, you know. Um, I mean, look. (laughs) I
4: think you have people who agree, to be honest.
6: Look, I take the mick out of the boulder punching scene as much as anyone. You know, it was an absolutely insane, absurd part of the franchise. But there it is. I wouldn't have drawn attention to it. (laughs) in that way but again like i say this is it's a collaborative process you know you don't get to control everything so and it did make me laugh so there's that
4: this because obviously in the japanese version chris is referred to as a gorilla which i think is an inside joke within the japanese community and this obviously leads There's one of the most hotly debated things within the community is which takes the lead in terms of like the storytelling and ultimately canon because there is quite sometimes vicious debates amongst the community as to like whether the core japanese script is the canon and any differences to the english version you always tend to go the japanese obviously we know in more recent years we believe it's written in english first and then translated into japanese is there much truth to that and could you sort of elaborate if you could uh, which does take the lead more was it like more your writing or you know do they inform each other kind of thing
6: well, first of all, I'll say I'm relieved that I thought this was going to be a question about Wide Chris uh, with his new character designer fridge. <laughs> which again, nothing to do with me. Um, so it is a it is a bit of both. Uh, the English script. I don't. I can't speak to previous games. I don't know exactly how seven worked, but I know for this one, the English script is the canon, as it were. Like I wrote my script first. Uh, again, all in collaboration, yes, you know, working from, often from previs supplied uh, by Capcom and, and what have you. But nevertheless, it was, you know, I was writing an original script, as it were, which was then being translated almost simultaneously, uh, mostly by Tazaki-san, I believe, uh, into Japanese. But of course, part of that is translating, and part of localization in general, is translating cultural references uh and keeping as you said references in localized versions of prior games in a series so the stuff about yeah referring to chris as a gorilla you know i didn't write that but i have no doubt that dezaki san when he was you know translating and localizing back into japanese would have put references like that in there uh but in terms of i mean you know when you have something that's localized like this and especially something that has been originated in two Different languages. It's so hard to say what is canon and what isn't. All I can say is that you know I wrote my English script first, and then it was translated into Japanese. But which one you want to regard as canon? You know, that's that's okay. an argument that I I don't want to get involved in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Quite understandable, but I think that's really useful anyway. We've got a few questions. If you're happy to do uh, a kind of uh, quick fire question sure. round. We'll see how we get on. Um,
6: the lightning round, go for the it. The light,
1: absolutely. Feel free to say can't answer that, move on. So one question, Blue Umbrella is suspiciously absent from the game, and they've revealed at the end of 7 created chaos in the community. Is there a reason why Blue Umbrella wasn't specifically followed up on in the Village?
6: Uh, Just because it was BSAA. I mean, you know, that's the reason, but it's not a nefarious reason. It's not, uh, it wasn't anything like yeah, it wasn't anything nefarious or specifically anti-Blue Umbrella. It was just like, no, 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 Chris and BSAA are the sort of, you know, the two points of relation to uh, to the lore in this game.
1: Do you think the BSA deploying bioweapons is an intentional clue for where the game, for the next game may go?
6: I could not possibly comment. Thank you. <laughs> um,
1: what is the history between Chris and Miranda? The game states he's been chasing her for three years, but nothing else is mentioned beyond that
6: uh i that's something i would not be surprised to see come up in dlc again i don't know i i'm not privy to those plans but it is definitely something that you know we talked about and it may well come up in other material
5: and i ask the cut content uh, with regard to ada wong and whether that was something that was already removed by the time you came on board or that was something like you say during the kind of the process and 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 uh, as the story develops uh, was felt wasn't needed
6: it never got beyond an idea, is is what I'll say about that. To the best of my knowledge, it was never... The only uh, stuff relating to that that I saw was some grey box previs that I was sent to do a writer's test for, you know, when I was in the process of being hired. That's literally the only time, and even then at the time, they didn't actually tell me that it was supposed to be Ada Wong. I didn't find that until later. Uh, That's the only time I ever saw that, and it's the only time it was ever mentioned. That it was never, to the best of my knowledge, it was never seriously considered, you know, to be part of the game. And certainly by the time I flew over to Japan and, and, you know, got in the writer's room, it, it wasn't, it was never mentioned again.
5: That's interesting, thank you. I think the community got an idea that she was much more established into the story and cut at a much later date, so that's interesting to know, thank you.
3: You mentioned Anthony that you didn't really do a lot of the late versions of the files, but were you involved in the um, Baker Report document that was made?
6: I was not, no. I was aware that it was being written, I was aware of its existence, as it were, and how it related because obviously you know it sort of it does shed light on a on a few things but uh no I didn't have any involvement in actually writing the document I'm now racking my brains trying to remember whether or not I may have written other stuff in that area that was drawn on <laughs> from the big of it yeah yeah and I again this must sound terrible but it's true when you're you just forget things like it was so long ago it's, now i'm like did i write that i don't remember it's
3: totally understandable and i guess as you said the the way that the, the the structure of how things come together even if it was potentially you or wasn't if it's been a while you, you're going to forget these things the, the, well, the details and
6: you, and you go through so many versions of this stuff that by the time especially now as i say i mean you know my i finished the last piece of script that I wrote for Resident Evil Village was over a year ago now, as we record this. So, if it's not in the final game, I've, you know, forget it. <laughs> I've forgotten it already. Forgot. <laughs> because every scene, every line that's in the final game, I guarantee you, was, apart from maybe that phone conversation <laughs> between Lady Jessica and Mother Miranda, apart from that, just about every line was rewritten at least half a dozen times, and some of them are a lot more than that, you know? So you just... This is part of the process. You learn to just kind of forget those prior drafts and focus on the one that you've got in front of you. So, yeah, that's why... If it sounds like I've got, I mean, I do have a pretty terrible memory, that is true. But also, <laughs> it is part of the process that you just kind of forget about your prior drafts and move on.
2: Is there a reason why the BSAA placed Ethan and his family in Eastern Europe so close to a Miranda in a village? Is there some sort of sinister reason behind that?
6: I could not possibly comment. <laughs>
5: It's funny that you can just, all you have to do is say that, but it almost tells a story. Just... <laughs>
2: Thank you. Is there anything you can tell us at all about why sort of Chris and the relationship with the BSAA seems to have degenerated so much since games like Resident Evil 6 and 7, where they're very much portrayed as, as the heroes?
6: I know because, again, that's something that may well come up in DLC or future games. I mean, again, you know, looking at the end of, village it doesn't take a genius to look at that and, and think like oh I have, my, I have an idea where this franchise might be headed in the next game so um yeah that's just something that i, I don't want to talk about because again it's not really fair on on anyone
1: why does mother miranda suddenly lose her powers at the end was it because of rose herself and why she was special and what did heisenberg see in her
6: Oh, right. Well, what Heisenberg saw in Rose was the fact that she was the key to destroying Mother Miranda, you know, as as it turned out was true. Rose is powerful, more powerful than anybody to you know, to trot out an old cliche, more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Um and he had a notion that he could somehow tap into that power, not by you know, transferring her soul <laughs> whatever Miranda was, uh, you know, like Miranda was trying to do, but somehow tapping into her power to use it against Mother Miranda. Why does Mother Miranda lose her powers? That is a question for the game designers, not me.
3: Going back to your, the way we started with your interest in Silent Hill, There is a feeling to me of things like the old lady hag that reminds me a lot of of Dahlia Gillespie and the Mother Miranda thing. Was there conscious ties to that Silent Hill thing aside from obviously the, the house stuff we've talked about was there anything that you went from a design point not for you but that you the way that you wrote these that may have kind of inferred that design i don't know that's a weird question it's not something i had thought of before now <laughs> uh
6: no but it's one i'm very happy to answer yes is the short answer um certainly especially things like the hag and the prayer you know the mother miranda prayer and the hag's prophecy you know, Midnight on Black Wings and all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, that that's that's grist to my mill, that is. I was, uh, you know, I, I grew up a teenage goth and I fronted several goth and heavy metal bands as a, as a young man. So uh, writing stuff like that, you know, is, <laughs> is a treat. Um, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to play up those aspects of the character, especially because, of course, you find out that it's all a bluff, you know. Or not a bluff exactly, but you... You realize that it's she believes it. Miranda Mm. believes this stuff absolutely, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's factually true. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not either. And that's the ambiguity that I love and that, you know, any good story I think calls for. But certainly, yes, that things like the village prayer and the hag's prophecy and all that sort of stuff, I really lent heavily into the spooky vibes on that. Because again, you don't get the chance to do that all that often in a Resident Evil game. So mm. when the cha- when the opportunity is there, of course I was going to grab it with both hands.
1: Well, I think that does wrap up our time with you, Anthony. I'd like to thank you for dedicating a decent hour with us and uh, sharing your experiences in the writing room uh, with Capcom and uh, creating, from my point of view anyway, um, one of the most complex and engaging storylines. Um, I-, I think I said it in our review podcast, my favourite since Resident Evil 5. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, so uh, it it certainly struck a chord with me. Um, I loved Ethan from Resident Evil Seven, so <laughs> I was delighted to have a direct sequel. So um, uh, yeah, it's been really interesting to listen to your your comments, uh, and uh, thank you Absolutely. so much for answering your uh, questions. No, <clears throat> oh, you're welcome. It's you know, been
6: a lot of fun. I just want to
4: say, from a personal point of view as well, um, you mentioned about you know wanting Ethan's story to sort of have resonance, and 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 I can certainly tell you that the moment um, he drops to his knees in the ending. Uh, with his job sort of completed i think is one of the most emotionally devastating moments we've had in the series so thank you very much
6: you're welcome i'm just glad that people have enjoyed it it's uh the reception has been i think beyond what anybody expected certainly myself included so yeah thank you
4: time
1: for neptune's fire hazard quiz 25
2: years of resident evil 10 years of the resident evil podcast Expert knowledge is needed in what we call The Quiz
5: This was my only opportunity for a point this week
4: uh, i just like to announce everybody that uh, this is zero points <laughs> for me this week, thank you, <laughs> bye bye
2: We've talked about the games straying too far from the origins, this Resident Evil <laughs> Quiz We're now getting Spice Girls as <laughs> the correct answer, I mean, it's time to quit Welcome to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Jesus what the fuck? a fucking <laughs> question,
1: what is that?
4: Batman. Star Tyrant.
1: Hello and welcome to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. It's season 7 so everyone is back in the game. All the scores are reset, so we can all calm, take a collective breath after the madness of the end of Season 6. You'll be pleased to know it's just five standard questions. We've got a mixture. A few have come in from the community, and I've put in some questions as well for you. So if everyone can clear their desktops, here we go. So question number one comes in from Umbrella Inc. Can you name four items in Remake that sports the Spencer family crest? So there are four items in Remake where you can see the uh, Spencer family crest. I thought this was a very good question. So there we go. Question number two. What three types of hunter appear in the Outbreak games? Not too bad. Not too bad. Question number three. Another question from Jordan Osiris this time. What is the name of the doctor in Resident Evil 3 remake of whom you pick up the security card? That's hard. That's a tough Repeat question. Repeat that question again. What is the name of the doctor in Remake 3 of whom you pick up the security card? Good okay, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, was yeah, pretty tough. Yeah, question number four. What was the full name of Glenn Arius' bodyguard? There we go. And finally, question number five. From Vito, everyone. <laughs> in Umbrella Chronicles, what is the name of the magazine that did an article about Billy's past? <laughs> No. Oh, no. Unaware. No idea. It's two answers, apparently. To paraphrase Sean, I'm going for a record zero this week. <laughs> They're the five questions. Join us after this one. We'll run through those answers. So question number one was from Umbrella Inc. So name the four items in Remake that have the Spencer Family Crest on it. George Trevor, we'll start with you because you are a big Remake fan. I am, and
5: I was going to thank Umbrella Inc because I think he's given me the opportunity to perhaps get more than zero. Uh, Okay. So the Spencer Family Crest is on the jewellery box. It's on both the emblems, like tarnished, you know, bronze, but it's kind of rusted version, and then the gold version. Mm Mm-hmm. And then of course the key for Spencer's little office. So that, that's four. Yeah.
4: That's your four.
1: Okay. Yes. Star's turn.
4: I knew the stone object and the key. Spencer key. I couldn't remember the fourth one.
1: Okay. Uh Rombie? Yeah, I had the
3: stone and middle object, or the middle object and the emblem key, but that was all I could remember. i forgot the jewelry box, but now as soon as GT said that I'm like, yep. Okay. Batman?
2: Yeah, I only had the key and the stone and metal objects as well. But I thought the gold emblem in the which you swap with the wooden one to put over the fireplace might have it on, but I'm not sure.
1: Okay, points to Batman and George Trevor. Correct, jewellery box, emblem, gold emblem, the stone and metal object, the metal object, and the brooch slash emblem key. So there's five options there. So points there to Batman and George Trevor. Well mm-hmm. done. Question number two was name the three types of hunter that appear in the Outbreak games. Uh, Star's Torrent.
4: Hunter Gamma, definitely. Hunter, I only know it as 125. I can't remember the Greek letter that is assigned with it, but it's the spined Hunter from below freezing point. Mm -hmm. And then there is the mini versions of that in End of the Road, but I can't remember what their sort of call sign or Greek designated letter is. So Hunter 125, the mini variant of that and Gamma.
3: Okay, Romby? No clue. Outbreak is my weak point, so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Batman? Whatever everyone else is.
2: (laughs) I've got the Hunter R MA one two five R, the Hunter Gamma, and the smaller version, which is the Hunter. I don't know what the Greek alphabet <laughs> pronunciation is, but the MU. MU. Okay. Yeah. George Trevor.
5: No, I'm, I'm completely in the same boat as as Ron B. No idea. No, just I need to bloody play Outbreak. <laughs> you do need to play Outbreak, my friend. Yes.
1: Uh, Points so, there no. to Batman and Stars Tyrant. Yes. Uh, Hunter Gamma one two four Gamma. Hunter one two five R and the Hunter mu is the correct. I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it, it to Sean.
4: Doesn't the two five not have a Greek letter assigned to it then?
1: No, it says R. So,
4: yeah. Oh, okay, I thought the R was the mini ones. Interesting.
1: No, the the mu is the smaller ones. But there we go. Yeah, it's a bit like the Tyrant R as well, I suppose. They like their R's in Outbreak. There we go. What can we say? Question number three came from Jordan there. What is the name of the Doctor in Remake 3 of whom you pick up uh, the security card? This is tough. You would have to have examined the uh, security card to know that
2: one. Batman, did you know this one? Dr. Rick Douglas, MD. Someone must know what I'm on about there. <laughs>
1: no, I was going to say it's just a joke. I don't know it. I get the feeling this is a this is a reference to something. But George Trevor?
5: No idea. I was going to say Doctor Bard until you said it was really difficult. Was yeah,
1: you know you him. don't pick up Doctor Bard's card. It's no, the other I've got
5: one. No idea.
1: No, this is this is really hard. Romby. Doctor Ecula? No, I don't know. I have no clue. Is Jordan going to stump you, all, Stars Tyrant?
5: Um,
4: Barry Jones.
1: It's close, but it's not right. Uh, no, it's uh, John <laughs> Ralph, Dr. John. What's oh, that Ralph. close to Barry Jones. John, R- John, R- John Ralph. Okay,
4: <laughs> you're Jim Bowen. Um, here's what you could have won style. Yeah. <laughs> Retort to <for> that.
1: <laughs> Question four is easier, though. Question four is easier. Uh, what was the name of Glenn Aris's bodyguard slash best man? What was his full name? Uh,
4: Diego Luna. Diego Luna. Right. <laughs> I only know Diego. I don't know. I don't know his surname.
3: Okay, Rombie. No idea. All oh, I know. Is he died in a terrible explosion that looked like a uh,
1: Looney Tunes cartoon? <laughs> yes, it did. Do we have a name at all? Any name? No, got, no. got nothing. Can't ever?
4: remember.
5: I've only seen this film once, and I forgot it about ten minutes later. I've got no idea. <laughs> for don't... the best GT, trust yeah, no, I... no
1: answer. No, oh, sorry. No. Batman, can you put them out of their misery? Diego Gomez. Diego, a there. big brute guy, I don't think. Big, big brute guy, yes. Correct, yeah. correct. So full point two Batman. I'm gonna give half a point to Star's Tarrant for Diego. Well done. Very good. Very good. And finally, question number five from Vito. This is ridiculous. In Umbrella Chronicles, what is the name of the magazine that did an article about Billy's past? Uh, if anyone has questions about this as to where this magazine is, please direct your question to Vito. I have absolutely no idea. Um Romby? Prisoners Monthly.
5: <laughs> I was gonna say convicts monthly, yeah.
3: <laughs> convicts Monthly has a better ring to it, GT. Don't give you copy that.
5: my answer. <laughs> it's the 1718 debacle all over again.
3: <laughs> I'm just saying it has a better ring to it. I'm not copying it. I'm just saying I, I wish I had said convicts
1: rather than prison. Is that your answer, George Trevor? Co- yeah. Convicts Monthly. Okay, Start starts,
4: uh, Mother Love, an interview with a Queen fan. <sighs> oh,
1: that's a good one. I'd love to give that as a point, Batman. Do you know this one?
2: I do. I think it's from *Umbrella Chronicles*. I think it's um, it's called *Wars Power Magazine*.
5: It's the correct <laughs> answer. Wow, well done! No. Outrageous. Wow. <laughs> oh, you you're a machine, Batman. <laughs>
1: unbelievable well done there we go so let's have a look at those final scores the winner this week starting off as he means to continue batman with a mightily impressive four out of five well done sir in second place with a respectable one and a half is stars tyrant uh with a solitary point is george trevor and the usually reliable romby with zero
4: it goes to show how shambolic this quiz is, Nick, when you're calling what, one and a half a high score. <laughs>
5: <laughs> and to be fair on Rombie, I think it's like 5am in New Zealand at
1: the moment. <laughs> so there we go. Congratulations, Batman. That does finish the first Neptune's Biohazard quiz of the season. Join us next time when we'll have some more questions. <laughs> knew I'd call that zero I knew it. <laughs> there we go so thank you everyone and uh, you know that does uh, bring our overall podcast towards an end I'd like to uh, place on record again our thanks to Anthony Johnson for joining us and spending uh, his time sharing his thoughts coming up next we will be looking at Infinite Darkness yes by the time uh, this is uh, edited and out Infinite Darkness will also be out on Netflix so we will be uh, looking to binge watch the four episodes because I think they are all coming out uh, in one jolt and uh, then we will be recording our thoughts on infinite darkness how it fits how it doesn't are we getting a better performance from leon and so forth all those questions you want answering we will endeavor to answer so keep an eye out for that on that note i'd, I'd like to thank everyone again for listening as well at home it's goodbye for me neptune goodbye for me batman
5: goodbye for me Star's tyrant goodbye for me george trevor
1: and goodbye for me robbie